1: shoes. recorded live.
0: Hello, this is Lisa with Charismatic Woman. We are starting our charismatic calls with sacred integration. And I feel kind of bad because what, what we're going to talk about today probably should go out to the larger group, but I'm not going to do that because I think it's worth discussing. And Janet is here with me. She's probably the best person to discuss this with. But we're going to loosely talk about bed-making theory slash occupational ther- therapy slash a study slash story that I read and I cannot find a source on. I looked for it briefly before the call and I didn't find it. So don't anybody ask me to quote the source. Um, but the story is, sort of story slash informal study, is that there was a Carnegie Foundation donor that had watched a few sort of generations of people who did larger donations in situations with like inner city children in who were largely in poverty, that, you know, if they stayed in school and they got these kinds of grades, they would pay for their college tuition. And those programs make really lovely headlines. But what this person observed was that once they got to college, the the lovely shiny headlines kind of fell apart. Those kids didn't do as well. Like they could get full sort of classes of students to perform fairly well, but once they got out on their own, it all kind of fell apart. And they would get an occasional really amazing – success story out of that, but the numbers in terms of success rates really started to deteriorate. And so they kind of mused a little bit about why and started tossing around some theories and came up with this very sort of obscure theory that there is a, a tie, some sort of a straight line between an ability to appreciate and implement aesthetics to success and life satisfaction. And so they tested it out. They took a test group of students and started off with them in high school and made them this deal, a very similar deal to some of the other, you know, groups that had been made similar offers before about stay in school, keep your grades up, you'll go to college. But they took a a different path with them, a slightly more interactive and proactive path with them when they were in high school rather than just asking them to get good grades like they actually got in the mix with these students and really worked hard on being able to teach them some higher level sort of aesthetic skills like really spent a significant amount of time exposing them to art in the arts and you know it, a year of the sort of curriculum in like design and elements of design and really sort of got deep in the deep waters with them about things like form and function and all of those things that we think of when it comes to sort of high-performing aesthetics. And when I first read this, I thought as I was reading it I kind of thought yeah that makes sense to a certain degree because when we think about wealthy successful people there is there's a like an element of vision I think that we get about that that has to do with a certain kind of aesthetic sort of this quality over quantity form versus function aesthetic thing that we see when we think about wealthy people in our minds but in my like when I was questioning it my thought was is that even fair to teach? Because these kids came from a background or an environment where they wouldn't have the money, the financial resources to really implement it in their lives. Um, And so I was a little confused or concerned that it would fall apart even for those kids, but it actually didn't. What they found in this study was that when the kids went away to college, which was where these things had fallen apart previously, they did, significantly better than their predecessors in similar arrangements. And they also found that they, when they came home from break, you know, from college on break, they would, for lack of a better way of putting it, beautify their living spaces in, with a mind or an eye for aesthetics with the resources and the money that they actually had. I mean, so there is a certain element of like organizational, aptitude and maybe, you know, cleanliness. And, but just a general eye for beauty and form and function, they, they would start to craft their environment around those ideals even without having the kind of money that we think typically is involved in that kind of form and function or that kind of aesthetic sort of, I don't know, thing, for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, they were able to use what they had. To make it work. And that particular group of students had a significantly higher graduation from college rate than any of their predecessors in similar sort of social experiments. In fact, I'm guessing, kind of based loosely on some of the antidotal stories of those students, that they went on to become very successful in their lives in general. And so the question then becomes, where is this connection between life skills, life satisfaction, and success with aesthetics. Um, I mean, David is an occupational therapist. And so he sees things, that's my husband for anyone who doesn't know, I tend to see the world as a the brain informs the rest of our life kind of thing. But because of his work, He sees things from a different perspective. He sees things in that the body or the environment informs our lives, our experiences. I mean, there's a term that they use, and I'm probably not going to get this right, but I think it's environmental and biomechanical cognitive reprogramming. That was good. I got it. Um, Where the body and the environment actually teach the brain which is kind of counterintuitive, particularly, Janet, it's ironic that you're on the phone. That's counterintuitive that what probably what you and I tend to lean into pretty heavily. But, I mean, their belief Mm -hmm. is, is that if you can put somebody through the motions of it, that if you can get their body moving in a specific direction through a specific set of behaviors, that if you can craft their environment in a specific way, you can imprint cognitive changes Without having to take the cognitive route to do it, it's almost like a back door. So, I and mean, I promised in the intro info that we were going to talk about this notion of making the bed as being one of life's secrets to happiness. Um, I think what was the quote? It was like a scattered bed is a scattered brain. Was the, was the word that we mm-hmm. used in the Psychology Today article? Um, but I think there's. There is something to it, and I kind of wish Jackie was here today for this conversation because she would probably be brilliant and artful in this conversation also, but there is something to this bit about sort of reverse engineering our cognitive perception of our own identities that, that is really, really powerful. So, Janet, Scott, what are you thinking so far?
1: Absolutely um it's really interesting that that whole idea about how we can use our physiology our bodies to to inform our brain to you know to um to to program our brains wow. it's it we can all experience that so easily um the most obvious way that we do it is by using our breath you know that thing where um uh, if we if something frightens us, we we get the fight or flight response, which is where you know all the blood goes to the muscles so that we can run away or we can fight, um, and a whole a whole lot of other physiological changes happen. One of them is that we breathe m- much faster to get more oxygen th- to the body as fast as possible. Um, but we can reverse that if we if we deliberately slow our breathing. So if we're having an anxiety moment for no you know there's nothing lethal immediately threatening us we're just having an anxiety moment Um, we can change that by changing how we breathe so um, and I'm sure every single person listening to this has experienced this in one way or the other or been taught it that idea that when things seem to be going pear-shaped you stop you take three long slow belly breaths and you get a sense of perspective you feel more in control that's exactly what David's talking about that's one example of how we we can deliberately use our physiology because what happens neurologically is that when we do that, when we control our breathing that way, it sends a message back to the brain to say, all is well here. And the brain goes, oh, okay, well, I'll switch off the fight or flight response. So it's a really, that that's just one really good example. But I absolutely love this idea about how we can use our sensory experience of the world, we can change that, we can control it, we can use it to then reprogram our brains so that they perceive reality differently. This is absolutely brilliant.
0: And I think, I mean, when I think about like this from sort of a feng shui perspective, right, because I think the Mm -hmm. role of feng shui that makes the most sense to me is the things that matter closest, the things that matter most are closest to you. So that obviously, in you know, this sort of example starts with our bodies, where we can use our bodies to retrain our cognitive. And again, we're talking here very specifically about a cognitive impression of our own identity, which is mm-hmm. undoubtedly the hardest thing to shift. And then the next thing out from there becomes our immediate environment, like that next Step In sort of that feng shui continuum is our immediate environment, how that can have an immediate effect on our cognitive impressions of our personal identity. And so then the question about why people don't make their beds, like that becomes really sharp, I think it becomes really clear is that, I mean, we talk about sort of that up limit thing, I, you know, that we get up against these upper limits where we're sort of pushing the limit of our own identities, and then we mm-hmm. get some disresonance. We kind of have to push through that. I think that the act, I and mean, aside from the group of people who maybe don't know, that there's a lot of, you know, large works of study out there that say making a bed has a positive impact on your happiness levels, And those people who say that, you know, the hygienic excuse, we need to let our beds air out. But when we're really talking about those people who know it and don't do it, I think Mm -hmm. that they're sort of subconsciously bumping up against that self-identity of that person who makes their bed and all of those things that that entails in terms of overall benefits. It's a real subconscious pushback. On making an identity shift.
1: I agree. I think I think this. It's really interesting to me that this, what seems like such a simple act, making a bed, can have. I mean, I think it's a fantastic metaphor for so much of the kind of work that 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 we do in life. You know, the um, our sense of worthiness, our sense of obligation. If making your bed was a punishment as a child, that's going to have some kinky energy to it if making the bed is one of those things where somehow it's become a competition to see whether it's my job or my husband's job or whatever that's going to have some kinky energy to it and understand being aware of I think being aware of that's the first place to go Um, but I think there's this worthiness aspect as well it's like do I deserve Mm -hmm. to have a well-made bed
0: That's interesting that you would say worthiness. And I think that, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. I mean, when we're talking about like our data points of who, just like identity data points of who we are becoming, I believe Mm -hmm. that you are with me in that a made bed every day is on that list. Like the person that I want to be, the woman that I want to be becoming is a woman who gets up and makes her bed every day without, without question. She just does it. Because there is some symbolism there about what a beautifully made bed means, and the and the worthiness around that, and it's such a micro example of, I think, a macro mm-hmm. thing. You know, a beautifully made bed or a a beautifully put together bedroom, like that that worthiness really does come into play.
1: It's interesting too because I, I struggled with this for a little while, for a couple of reasons, and looking back on that struggle is also kind of revealing um, one aspect of the struggle was the sense of I, I, that sense of the distinction and it's a really nuanced thing there's a distinction I think between being the woman who makes her bed every day uh, and being the woman whose bed is made every day the second one feels more open to me and it, in a sense it's like some days I will be the one who creates the made bed. Some days I may not be. But it takes the pressure off me being the woman who has to make her bed every day. <laughs> and and it took me a while to sort of meander my way through my own relationship with that whole bed making thing. Um, part of that was tackling this whole question about hygiene and just for the record so that um, uh, uh, back in the 1980s the very first time I experienced a bed that was made with a duvet rather than sheets and blankets was on a skiing trip in Austria and uh, our beds we had my ex-husband and I were traveling together and our bed was made with a separate single duvet each in these beautiful white pristine white covers and every day we went we'd go out skiing and we'd come back and the room service staff would have rolled up each duvet separately and laid it so that it was sort of lying down the length of each side of the bed so we would have these so the beds had been made but it wasn't conventionally made bed the bed was made in such a way that it was aired and it was beautiful but it wasn't what I was used to So these days what I do, my my making of the bed is I shake and fluff up the duvet, it gets rolled to the foot of the bed so that it airs, the bed airs, that's a beautifully made bed. This is not necessarily hotel convention or Western convention or American convention or Australian convention, it's just a, a way of making it that looks fabulous and then when we're ready to get into bed, the duvet gets unrolled and it's all puffed up and beautiful. And I think for me that was actually a core part of this was being able to say I get to decide what a made bed looks like. It doesn't have to look the way that it looks in every, you know, Better Homes and Gardens magazine. Right? It's cared Um, for, it's hygienic, it's beautiful, it's neat, it's tidy, it looks fabulous, but it doesn't look conventional.
0: And it didn't have to cost a bajillion dollars. I think that's the other thing. Like, I got hung up on that Carnegie study, right? Like, how were these people going to go home and implement it when they didn't have resources to do it with? These were children in Mm. poverty. Now they're young adults in poverty. Are we setting them up to fail and feel bad about themselves? Indeed. Are we we actually making it worse than it was before? Because they know this, they see it, they understand these elements of aesthetics but we're not actually writing them a check to be able to do it with. But that didn't turn out to be the case. Like, they instinctively went with what they had. They instinctively crafted spaces with things that were already on hand and gifted themselves, the gifting yourself of the energy and a a reinvestment of your own energy back into yourself through your environment. Hmm.
1: Absolutely. It's not
0: about the price tag. And I think the other thing when it comes to bed making, right, like I'm, and I mentioned in the little thing I sent out, like I saw a show last night where this issue of bed making kind of was even a joke. Like there was a pair of siblings and one of them was very successful. She was actually a lifestyle design expert and her younger brother was like, I turned out fine. I'm an attorney. I'm successful, and I never made my bed, and, you know, they kind of Mm -hmm. laughed at each other about that theory. I don't know that making my bed, certainly the studies do show that it probably does lend itself to being successful or, quote, happy, but kind of going back to the nuts and bolts of what we're doing with sacred integration is it's not about chasing happiness. That it really is about anchoring into a feeling of contentment, of like right here, right now, in this moment, a deep sense of being contented. And whether it's symbolic, you know, again, that very micro act, like making my bed and stepping back and looking at that leaves me feeling not happy, but deeply contented. Mm -hmm satisfied. There's, there's an immediate present now moment sense of satisfaction It is really palpable with just that small act that takes a couple of minutes of making a bet.
1: Agreed. Agreed. I really like that distinction between, I think happiness is such a, it's a difficult word anyway, because it's, it's way too broad and generic Um, and we tend to associate it with you know sunshine unicorns and rainbows not that there's anything wrong with those things but they're kind of they can be elusive and if we hang our idea of being a successful person on having rainbows and sunshine and unicorns all the time then (laughs) it's kind of going to be tricky but I really like this idea of contentment as something that we can if we can pull ourselves into the present moment and find something that allows us to be contented, I think that's much easier to pull off.
0: I think it's a higher state of vibrational alignment, partially because it is in this present moment. Like contentment Mm. is very present oriented versus happiness, which can kind of be all over the board. I mean, Mm. happiness has been branded as the thing you pursue. Yeah, of I mean, yeah. It's, it's been marketed really cattywampus, but contentment is, is accessible in the moment almost all the time. I mean, there are very, and I won't say all the time, like generally, like absolutely, but most moments can be contented. And I think also the thing about contentment is that I am learning to really love is I don't have to wait to feel contented. I can craft or design my own contentment.
1: Yes, agreed, agreed. Um it's also been really interesting for me reading the material and you know the, and I have to confess I have not been as engaged with the actual work as like as deeply as I'd like to. Part of that's because I've been doing some other work which Lisa you know about um which is sort of Kind of more um, bouncy and rocky, <laughs> um, let's say. But what I really like about this is that it's also very connected to our. To the, I'm looking at it from an astrological point of view. This is pure Venus. Now that's my chart rule So obviously, I'm a. Obviously, I'm a little biased here, but this is pure Venus, and that. Venus is connected to our sense of self-valuing. One of the things about Venus, if we think about her predecessors, Ishtar and Aphrodite, these were goddesses who had absolutely no trouble engaging pleasure and beauty and charm and um, a sense of self-valuing, not in order to please anyone else, but purely for their own enjoyment, for their own sake. Um, so, I, and and I think that that sense of contentment, if, if we just do that one little moment at a time, it's a really powerful way of honoring Venus and that in turn is incredibly supportive for our sense of self-worth, which is essential if we're going to do, if we're going to have a life that we enjoy and that has meaning. And
0: I think the thing about Venus energy, and you and I have talked about this a little bit recently, Venus energy is not striving. It's, mm. not, it's not external. Venus energy is not chasing. It's not pursuing. Venus energy, again, is very rooted in this present moment. And that doesn't mean that she's not going to get up and take care of herself. But she's not going to be really... I mean, she's not necessarily just going to sit and wait to feel luxurious. She's going to get up and run a bath. You know, she's she's mm. going to get up and, you know, light the candle or burn the incense, but she's not. Venus energy doesn't, it doesn't strive or claw or No. It is a, it's sort of a very, I mean, again, back to this environment, our relationships with our environment and our relationships With our willingness to take responsibility for our present moments, it's very self contained.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Indeed. I think, you know, from the LOA standpoint, and this is always tricky territory for me to traverse in the LOA world because there is such a, it's so cerebral right? Like you're supposed to be able to just sit and anchor the feeling that you want and ride the waves of that newly anchored feeling. And action items get such a bad rap in law of attraction. I mean, a a terrible, Mm -hmm. terrible, the to-do list is just, I mean, that's that's like a four-letter word. But I think (laughs) when I'm when I'm talking about or when I'm even engaged in like crafting moments and experiences, there are some to do involved with that. I mean, there is some action. There's some sort of willingness to create and co-create rather than just sitting and trying to anchor an imaginary state. And I haven't found a really good way to communicate that that doesn't sound anti-LOA. Because we're so used to just saying you don't take action, you don't take action, but I really do believe we have like this beautiful, wonderful physical world, and we're not using all of the tools available to us to create. If we're trying to do it all in our head, like, we have all of this physical material to work with. Our our environment can become our most, you know, the most sustaining factor to our dominant vibrations. But for mm. some reason, we've been trained to think that you've got—it's a mental game. That whole business about it's an inside job. Like it can be an inside job and an outside job, without you being dependent on anyone or anyone else to do it for you. Can you explain that better than I just did? That's I'm still oh.
1: <laughs> I don't know that I don't know about better, but I I can bring some other language to it, maybe. Um, the and this has been a trial and error thing for me and i'm you know i won't say that i'm an expert in it by any means but for me one of the ways that i've found helpful to think about it is to think about it from that identity perspective and think about it from it's like that when we look at the brain science um we know that there are t- that the two ways that we can alter make physical and literal changes to our brain which in turn changes our experience of reality, is through our thoughts and our behaviours. Now, if you only do one, the trouble with only doing it through thought is that it's actually pretty hard to maintain for more than a few minutes, which leaves the rest of the day kind of immersed in the behaviour of the old identity. If we're not doing any different behaviour, then we're simply reinforcing the old identity and the old brain wiring. So that's where I also encourage people to bring in the behavior of the new identity and this is what you would you know this is the stuff that you could talk about with your data points this idea of how does this girl make her bed how does this girl or not make her bed what choice does this identity if I'm thinking about my new identity that identity either makes her bed or doesn't make her bed and what's the what's the rationale behind that if I think that my new identity chooses deliberately to not make her bed and have a really untidy, messy-looking bed, I'd better have a damn good reason for that. <laughs> I mean, I would find it really hard to kind of come up with a good reason for that. Um, it's much more likely that if I'm still not making my bed, then I'm probably embedded in my old identity. That's just that's just one example because we've been talking about the bed-making. But it's also the other behaviours. So would my new identity, the, the, the person that I'm becoming, would she choose to journal about beautiful things? Would she choose to journal about three good things, for example? Would she choose to um, create that little beautiful space? The work that you've been describing in the sacred integration emails, the, the actions that you describe here, not my new identity might not do all of them, but I can guarantee that there are at least some of them that she would love. And that those behaviours, when I engage them deliberately and with intention, they become a um, a tool for rewiring my brain, which means I'm that that pulls me into it, draws me into that new identity. So that it's so for me, creating the new identity, creating the life I want. That's the, they're the same thing. They require me to upgrade my thoughts and my behaviours not just my thoughts. I can't do it with thought alone because I spend, you know, if I'm spending, I don't know, at the most I could manage 30 minutes a day of new thoughts. Um, That leaves 23 and a half hours every day where I'm still living in my old identity. That's a really difficult trick to pull off. But if I can get my behavior matching my new identity more of the time, then I can upgrade that.
0: And everything you just said, because you did put it better than I would have, everything you just said with the added bonus of contentment now. Contentment now. Because you're crafting your own contentment. And when you do that, that contented state of mind, that contented place of being is particularly resistance-free. I mean, from an LOA standpoint, resistance being kryptonite to what you're trying to create Mm. when you are contented now through those actions where you are nurturing and gifting yourself and reinvesting your own energy in yourself and that contentment diminishes resistance the adoption of that new identity becomes ever so much more smooth and easy and I would even take it one step further and saying Back to the research, like you said, like some people's identities may not include these kinds of things. I mean, I think every, I they, they just may not. I mean, maybe beautification or you know, space upgrade or whatever it is that we're up-leveling, as Jackie would say, we're talking mm. about wouldn't be a part of that identity. But why not draft on what we know to be true based on the science of, I mean, back to the micro bed making alone if bed making has that kind of impact and we know it because the studies have been done then up leveling and like upgrading the quality of our environments and our spaces has to have an exponential impact so i think there's really this sort of three-phase payoff which is you know you're, you're drifting into the science of what we know works for creating quote success unquote We are adopting a new identity or an upgraded identity based on our behaviors because that's probably the most effective way to upgrade an identity anyway is by behaving as if. And thirdly, we're creating contentment now, which diminishes resistance and makes all of the deliberate creation work much, much smoother.
1: The other thing I really love about this, Lisa, is and this has only just clicked for me, is that, of course, the whole point, the the only reason that we are remotely interested in using law of attraction, changing our lives, identity shifting, whatever we want to call it, is because we think we will be contented then. We think Mm -hmm. we'll be contented after we've made that change. So if we get contented now, then we automatically, immediately and without effort, step into our new identity as as it's it's a done deal. <laughs> Everything else is just kind of window dressing in a way. If we can step into contentment now, then we don't need to, anything to change.
0: And I think that's where this partnership is, right? Like rather than just sitting around and trying to think yourself mm-hmm. into contentment, mm-hmm. we actually can get up and take small yet meaningful steps when they're stacked, small, meaningful, stacked-up steps that curate or design contentment.
1: Agreed. Agreed.
0: I think we just talked our way clear through this. I think everybody should make their beds.
1: Yes, I do, too.
0: Janet does. Something, but I think that pretty much sums it up. Do you have any final thoughts?
1: I did want to say i mean i I think in fact again i said I said that I thought the bed making was a perfect kind of microscopic metaphor for everything, but when I discovered the way that I like to make the bed that doesn't look like a better homes and garden things, I did some time ago. I I actually went and got all the extra cushions and pillows and et etc et cetera, that you're supposed to have on a beautifully made bed. I've stayed in enough hotels and I've seen enough pictures to know how it's supposed to go. And seriously, Lisa, having all, those, all that crap on the bed, it drove me nuts. And now I know that for a lot of people that all those extra cushions and things are luxurious and they're not crap. But for me, it was just stuff I had to move backwards and forwards. Every time I wanted to get into bed and sleep, my husband and I have one pillow each. That's all we want when it comes to sleeping. And I spend more time sleeping in my bed than doing anything else, um, even though I do do other stuff. Sleeping is the principal activity. And for me, uh, cluttering it up with stuff in between bouts of sleeping just didn't work. So all my cushions and beautiful extra bits, they now live on the daybed in my office. In fact, I'm looking at them as I speak. And they look fabulous and, I, and that's where they live and that's where they stay. The bed just has what we need on it for sleeping. And if, we ever, if I need to bring anything in for, you know, sitting up in bed doing work or whatever it is I might decide to do, which doesn't happen often, then I bring them in. That's fine. But my making of the bed doesn't have to look like anything else. And I think that's really, that's crucial with this kind of work that we're talking about across the board. I, it's not anybody else's. Like I, I it's it, it's it's kind of misguided if, if I decide to base my decision of about contentment on what somebody else likes. I know this is one of the things Jackie talks about in her work. She talks about the need to make our space beautiful, but she says she's very clear that her def- definition of what's beautiful to her is completely immaterial to anybody else. You cannot go by somebody else's you know ideas of what makes a bed beautiful my idea of a beautifully made bed is very minimalist it's basically a fitted sheet two pillows and a rolled up duvet at the foot of the bed that's it that is not that is never going to make it to the cover of better homes and gardens magazine and i don't care <laughs> that that's what contentment looks like to me when i look at my bed and i think that's something
0: that's something you have to feel into, right? Which causes yes. you to be really present with yourself. Because it's really easy to, when I was reading about all of the things about bed making, one of the articles that I read, which was actually on HuffPo, said was one of the benefits of making your bed was that it would help you feel more Pinterest appropriate. And I I, I rolled my eyes and almost <laughs> chuckled. It's like, eh, I'm probably huh, not going to quote funny. that. And, and I but. <laughs> But it really does come down to what feels, what anchors, again, that feeling of contentment is is going to be different from one person to the other.
1: Agreed. And, you, and I think in many instances, it comes back to what we were saying before. You, it, I'm not going to say you can't ever know what you like until you've tried it out. I, I think that, you know, that would be a stupid thing to say. But I do think that, you know, I, I had looked at images of these beautiful beds and I loved the way they looked, but they weren't functional. So it has to be form and function, and it, that's such an individual thing. Jackie and I laugh about the fact that, for me, a sleek, minimal bathroom with nothing, you know, just the sort of the, the plainest, plain mirror on the wall, that lights me up. For Jackie, she needs it She needs it ornate and... Um, and kind of rococo and that totally suits her and each of us has the capacity to look at the others kind of thing and go i can totally see how that's your thing <laughs> and that's cool there's no sense of but i i but i would never have known that about how i like my bed made if i hadn't been prepared to try things out because i there was a there was a time where i genuinely didn't know and part of that was because it was ta- it had been tangled up with ideas of, you know, this is a job you have to do as a child. This is, you know, that, 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 that you resist when you're, you know, when you went off, or certainly for me, when I made the move from living at home to living on my own, the reason I stopped making my bed was because it was an act of defiance, an act of rebellion, an act of self-expression that I had to go through. And then I kind of grew out of that. Um, so we, p- I think, playing with this and playing with this this work is so important. Yeah, I agree.
0: I agree. I think you know, back to that study of aesthetics, right? It's it's like it's to some degree it's almost a study of ourselves, our own preferences, mm. our own feel good spots. Like when I think about as like it's funny when I think of aesthetics, like the first thing that comes to mind is sort of a very modern uh Sort of blank slate. I don't know why, but that's like the neuro connection in my mind is sort of modern design and aesthetics. And that's not my sweet spot. I mean, I don't like clutter, but I do like a little bit of ornate sort of international flair in my spaces. I'm not ever going to be like a full, you know, minimalist, so to speak. But that is a study of myself. I mean, that is something that I know about myself because. I've ex- I've explored it and and as I'm exploring all of this, I mean going through this, like reclaiming these flat spaces one at a time, I'm actually finding a lot of comfort in a lot more blank space than I thought I would.
1: It's fascinating, so isn't
0: it? Maybe my tastes are evolving or maybe maybe I'm just not up to date with my current version of myself. But as I have reclaimed these spaces, they are staying much more clear and crisp than decorated and, and I don't know, ornated, I guess I would say. Mm.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. I think that's the other thing with, that's fascinating with this work is, and again, it's a way of being present to yourself, is noticing how tastes shift and change. Um and for me, part of this, I've, I'm really intrigued by, again, it's a nuanced thing, but it's that distinction between the idea of the old fake it till you make it and the idea, which I much prefer, of inhabiting inhabiting that identity, um, immersing in that identity. And, and part of that is doing a kind of check-in to see whether this is actually bringing me contentment you know with okay. like my thing with the pillows for the bed i had this idea that they would be that they would add to my sense of contentment and they didn't they just added to my irritation but when i fine tuned where they you know where they got moved to now they add to my sense of contentment but not it was but not in the way that i initially theorized it's like my i had a theory and then i had to or I had a hypothesis, to give it its correct scientific term. I had a hypothesis, I tested it out, and now I have a, a solid theory of what I know will work for me.
0: And I think in the process, though, even if you don't nail it in the beginning, you're still investing in yourself. So you're Absolutely. You're still reinvesting your energy back into your own your own life.
1: Because you're asking yourself, you're giving... You you know, it's one of the ways that we value another person is to say to them genuinely with curiosity, what would you like? What would you like best? I mean, that's an incredible thing to ask another person when we do it genuinely. So what we're doing with this process is we're doing that for ourselves. What would I like? That's awesome. (laughs) It's
0: really simple. But I mean, when you Mm. said it, About contentment, like I to ask yourself, what would you really like best? There's kind of a deep inhale, exhale there.
1: Yeah, and it is, and it's also that. What would I like best now? That sense of the present moment, the contentment. Right.
0: Yeah. We got this. We nailed it. I like it.
1: I love it. And now I'm going to be putting it more into practice.
0: (laughs) I think actually, I mean, it's funny that you said that you're having, I mean, you were saying we were having problems, but you are distracted with some of your other work, which like you said is a little bumpy and jagged. This would be Mm -hmm. a really great place actually to create some cushion for that bumpy work. And when I think about women and charismatic woman right now, you're not alone and the bumpy ride. I mean, it was, I certainly needed this work for a number of reasons, some of which are really obvious. I mean, the election kicked my ass and turned me inside out. Um, I needed, I needed a cushion, but there are a handful of us, a large handful of us that are really going through some jagged growth spurts Mm -hmm. right now, or some, you know, really uncomfortable experiences. And, I think it would be a nice way to cushion yourself in that process so that you can move through that work with less bruising. Mm. Agreed. Agreed. All right, my dear, and everybody else who's listening in archive, we will catch you next week. Thank you for – this is a much better conversation than if I had done this
1: as a monologue. Oh, thank you for thank you for doing this work right now. It's um it, as you as you've identified, you are you know we're not alone in the bumpy ride. And I think I I agree with you. I think the cushioning possibility for this is enormous. And I also think that between the bumpy ride and the cushioning, there's um there's something marvelous that can emerge. So thank you for doing this. And thank you for letting me be part of the conversation. I appreciate it.
0: Of course. All right. We'll catch you next week. Mm -hmm. Love you guys. Love you, Janet.
1: Love you too. Bye. With Lucky Land Slots, you
0: can get lucky just about anywhere.